Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your res- regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Jacob Siegel is out today, roaming the streets knocking off tall hats, so your guides today are me, Phil Cly, and Sam Moyne, professor of law and history at Yale University and the author of Humane, which we will be discussing today. Uh, thank you very much for, for being on the podcast. It's a privilege to chat with you. <laughs> and um, so I am delighted uh, to have you on because I think that your book, which is has generated a decent amount of, of, of discussion and controversy, um, is getting at the root of something about the way that war is waged in the 21st century and the way that America wages war in the 21st century um, that has been increasingly disturbing to me. And I wondered if you could sort of just kind of briefly give a um, <laughs> an explanation of, you know, what the basic argument of the book is and how you came to it. Sure. So, I mean, I think you put the kind of that decisive point incredibly well in, in your Commonweal review. The basic, you know, premise of the book is that we've moved from the first to the second war on terror. And the first involved uh, George W. Bush's decisions to intervene and occupy two countries with lots of troops, uh, as you know. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. and um, that, that went south pretty quick, actually. And yeah. Americans began electing presidents to turn that off. And, you know, only now have we, they gotten a third one who's finally succeeded. But uh, Barack Obama um, pivoted not to peace, but to a, a new form of the war on terror. And it involves withdrawal of, of those heavy footprint troops. I mean, he surged in Afghanistan, you know, listening to the wrong advice. But um, then he drew down from 100,000 to 8,000. Um, but he turned to the shadow war um, and yeah. it's light footprint with special forces, no footprint with armed drones and standoff missiles. Uh, and, you know, what I emphasize is that because of the way that, you know, culture was trending even before 9-11 and then the way that the first war on terror got delegitimized by its critics as brutal. Obama kind of brilliantly um, began advertising humane war as the only alternative to brutal war. And he institutionalized it. Uh, and uh, that is uh, when I noticed that and got kind of disturbed by it, I decided to figure out like, how did America get here? How did it become the country to bring this thing online? When did people first imagine humane war and how did it come about and what are its potential costs? Right. So you, you disentangle kind of two different humanitarian or humane approaches to war, right? And one of them is the urge to make sort of fight back against war crimes, uh, take better care of civilians, take better care of the injured uh, and the vulnerable. And the other is the move to push back against war itself. And one of the really fascinating things, and, and you know, this book is sort of like, it's so uh, geared to appeal to me, not just because it's, a, it's, it's something about modern war that I, I care about very deeply, but your, your opening figure is a novelist, uh, <laughs> Tolstoy. Um, and uh, one of the things is that there were people in the anti-war movement who actually saw the humanitarians not necessarily as enemies, but sort of as, as a trap that folks could fall into. Um, the the uh, One peace activist actually described it exactly that, that humanizing war was a trap that opens up in, in front of the feet of the pacifists. And that may seem sort of strange, but it's funny. I was at a lecture um, uh, just last week uh, on aesthetics and war, and there's a very interesting talk. It was fantastic about algorithms and war and drone strikes. And a lot of emphasis was put on the fact that these algorithms can fail, that we sometimes hit the wrong people. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my question to the person, you know, who, who's trying to give a critique of modern warfare was to say, you know, we can talk about the inevitable failures of drones and algorithmic warfare, but I think that if you are disquieted by our modern wars overall, that seems like energy <laughs> that that is sort of not ultimately going to be expended uh, sort of most usefully, not that you can't push back against those things or that you shouldn't advertise them when they go wrong, but that if you focus too much on the fact that drones can sometimes strike civilians, well, the the response from people you know <laughs> in, in favor of the wars will just be say, well, they're actually doing better than any other form of warfare ever in right. terms of civilian casualties. Right. And this is just a, you know, an argument for better refining our methods. Um, whereas what Tolstoy gets at is this idea that, you know, if violence is legalized, slavery exists, right? Um, that, you know, there are different ways of, of trying to sort of organize how men live together, right? right. Um, and one of them is... Uh, you know, uh, if you kind of go back to like Arendt's notion of Hannah Arendt's notion of like power is something that, that emerges out of people, um, uh, you know, all government rests on opinion, right? That right. people coming together um, and making decisions versus sort of uh, the kind of feral obedience that you get at the barrel of a gun. So um, yeah, that you know, you're getting exactly at what I wanted to kind of raise. And it's not like I have answers, but I really wanted to pose the question about the the risks of humanizing war. Um, Precisely because, like everyone else, I'm so tempted to think that um, either it's, it's good for its own sake to reduce suffering in war, or that I might succeed in sapping the legitimacy of the larger enterprise by showing that war is hell. The trouble is, what if, what if it's not the same hell as you suggest in your review? What if actually power can make it more humane and I then assist not in ending war, but in making it, you know, endless. And so, um, you know, I started with Tolstoy for a few reasons. First, I'm a, you know an old school lit major. Actually, I'll I'll say in a minute this book was going to end with literature too, um, but I didn't get there. Um, with with, but, with with what literature? Well, so you know, I was going to start with with Tolstoy always, but I was going to end with this question about whether the literature or the war on terror since I strongly believe that it's up to the poets in the broadest sense to end war, um, has kind of faced the, this novelty. Yeah. You know, one essay I love, I'm sure you know it, is Scott Beecham's essay, The Detached Literature of Remote Wars. And I think we can say that there's been, like the classic works, you know, um, present company included of the war on terror are are set in and around that first form of the war on terror. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that um, our poets have like kind of captured in any, in any classic, you know, book yet uh, or poem, this new form. And I I'm, I'm hoping, you know, since I know that it's not kind of historians or intellectuals who kind of, kind of change the imagination, but, actually imaginative people i'm hoping that kind of poetry catches up but you know tolstoy was so important because he was there at at the kind of present at the creation of just at least the idea of making war humane and right as you say for a while you know there's much more open debate about whether it is a good thing whereas i try to show it became almost unchallengeable and the risk that Tolstoy worried about, even though it was only kind of incurred in our time, got lost. And I want to kind of bring his his worries back because we may be the ones who are realizing his nightmare. Right. 
So the, you know, one of the things that I liked about you, your book is you capture the kind of energy and vitality that late 19th and early 20th century anti-war movements have. And one thing that was sort of uh, interesting to me, um, you know, one of the main emphases of these groups was international institutions that would adjudicate differences between countries. And um, one of the early suggestions was from William Jay, son of uh, the founding father, John Jay, um, who thought that we needed a, a, a system where nonpartisan outsiders would adjudicate differences at, that we would federalize the world, and he saw this as a extremely American thing, right. uh, doing, quote, for fractious nations what the Constitution had done for their previously fractious states in 1787, um, right. Right. Uh, you know, which amused me, uh, given the, the way certain rhetoric about international institutions goes now, exactly. uh, uh, you know, versus, you know, the, the United States' prerogative as, as, a, as a superpower. And, and against that, you, you note the, <laughs> the, um, you are, let's say you're extremely cynical about the achievements of, of, um, the humanitarians. Uh, now, you know, it's funny, there's, I didn't have time to get in, into it. There's John, John Fabian Witt has a, what I thought was a wonderful book about Lieber's code, um, where he sees it as, I think he describes it as both a sword and a shield, right. <laughs> and a humanitarian shield, um, where it was a tool for warfare, but, you know, he feels that it also laid the groundwork for further humanization. And, yep. and, um, and I wondered if you could talk about, you know, Lieber's Code is, is, is often described as sort of the early foundation of, um, you know, international humanitarian law. Uh, it's put into effect during the Civil War uh, to, you know, determine what was legal for the Union Army in the conflict. Um, uh, you know, it, it includes, I think, some of the first written prohibitions against rape in war, sure. uh, against torture. Uh, where, where does your cynicism about Lieber's code, code lie? Because it, it's always a sort of heroic narrative that I've been sure. more familiar with. Um, actually, you know, when I, when I was in law school back right before 9-11, you know, I took the laws of war and it was not, it was kind of like back a backwater field at that mm -hmm. time. No one, you know, knew what was coming. And we, we were presented with Lieber's code as one of the kind of origin points. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to not just idealize the peace advocates. I wanted to show that, you know, compared to, you know, Tolstoy's uncompromising pacifism, um, which led him to say soldiers should refuse conscription and s should doubt that states will ever get their acts together. The, the kind of mainstream of the peace movement did shoot for like arbitration or, you know, treaty organization of the kind that uh, ultimately, you know, came to be in the United Nations. And I'm 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 really trying to say these these people struggled for something and achieved it transatlantically but the price was that America took on the kind of global warfare that Europeans had been fighting for centuries and of course the United States had fought in the Philippines um and so in a way peace uh comes to Europe through the Americanization of global warfare, it was still brutal. And the last step is kind of how it became humane. And um, I, I, I really admire John Witt's book and I taught with him while he was writing it. And I learned an enormous amount about Lieber from him. Um, I think that, you know, what we, we see when we kind of take off the rose tinted uh, glasses about Lieber is that he was a disciple of Carl von Clausewitz, his main kind of concession to humanity, though, of course he does um, ban torture is in saying that brutal wars will be brief. Um, right. And that's not like what everyone else today means by making war humane. Um, and, 
I think one of the, the more graphic illustrations of this is that Lieber was completely on board with what I, I kind of refer to in shorthand as track two warfare, which is to say there's a set of rules for conventional warfare, but irregular and partisan warfare is just no holds barred. And of course, that's the kind of warfare that was generally fought out in the global spaces where America eventually became the kind of brutal um, kind of, you know, uh, kind of brutal power um, and didn't really kind of kind of take standards seriously. And, you know, um, Korea, Vietnam, and more than that, these standards, in spite of Tolstoy's worries, had not really been made all that humane yet, especially when it came to aerial bombardment. So Lieber, um, you know, is is interesting because in a way he's not all for very humane war and he's more representative of a tradition that has to be overthrown to get more humane content in the law and an America that kind of takes that content seriously. And I think that only happens like a hundred years after Lieber. Right. So I, I kind of postponed the story till then. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you point out, Imperial Wars, colonial wars were unbelievably, you know, brutal. And, and <laughs> despite Lieber's code, uh, you know, a hundred years, almost a hundred years later in Korea, you know, you've got 4 million casualties uh, half of them civilian, um, with the air force, you know, reducing North Korean towns and villages to ruins and then strafing survivors who are trying to put out the fires. Right. Right. Um, so, and, and, and another thing that you notice note is that when we entered into Vietnam, we promised that we were going to abide by all the international laws of war. Right. Um, and make South because, Vietnam obey too. I mean, which yeah. is even more amazing. <laughs> which, uh, you know, sort of shows how, how, uh, how toothless, I suppose, we expected them to be. Right. 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 Um, and then with Vietnam, there is an increasing emphasis on, on atrocity, right? Uh, there's yeah. a line in your book, consciousness, uh, um, uh, of, uh, where it's like uh, atro the timing of atrocity consciousness is everything, right? Right. Um, and the My Lai massacre becomes, uh, becomes a big deal. And the legal strategy of people opposing the war, uh, prominent lawyers opposing the war, shifts from focusing on whether or not the conflict is legal or not, which never got any traction uh, to focus, focusing on atrocity. And I have to say, you know, one of the things in the present day that... Um, <laughs> is sort of a frustration for me is, you know, currently we're at war in a lot of places. It's, it's sort of even hard to say exactly how many places that we're at war at. There are seven or eight countries at least where we are directly killing people. There are about four other countries where we're not sure. We have, you know, U.S. operators pushed down to a tactical level, directly engaged in, in helping plan and coordinate, um, you know, the movement of, of local troops, but we don't know whether or not they're killing people. We tend to find out about that if an American dies, as happened in, in right. Niger. Right. And all of that is sort of under the auspices of the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which gave the president sort of expanded powers. And you talk about how Obama extended those. And so when I talk to people about the wars, often I find that, you know... <laughs> The progress that I want um, is not so much, uh, I remember I gave a talk uh, and um, a former member of Obama's cabinet uh, was in the, in the audience and he said, okay, well, you know, what do you think we should do in Afghanistan? And I, and I gave, you know, and I said, I think we should repeal the authorization of military force. Right. <laughs> um, and then if you want to continue to wage war in Afghanistan, uh, it should be a political debate and it should be right. back within the realm of, uh, of politics as we Absolutely. talk about, you know, what we want to do, uh, what it's going to cost, what victory looks like, uh, and whether or not we actually have public support for such a thing. 
And he said, okay, okay, but what do you want to do in Afghanistan? I said, no, no, really what I want to do is this more technical thing, right? Um, Because it seems to me that if we don't actually rein in uh, the the power of American presidents to wage war without any reasonable political check, right? It's not that we'll have good wars guaranteed if we have more of a political process and, and where we take the idea of America going out in the world and killing people seriously as a political question that every member of Congress should vote on. It's not, it's, that doesn't mean that we're going to have good policy, but I think right. that we can never have good policy if we right. don't at least do that, Absolutely. right? And so um, it seems to, you know, this distinction that you're making, first off, I got a lot of people very mad. Um, you were accused of having torture nostalgia by a prominent writer at The New Yorker. Do, do you now or do you, have you ever had nostalgia for torture, sampling? No, no. I think it was napalm, but it, I'm not. <laughs> oh, napalm. You know, Sorry, I'm napalm. I'm a little softer yeah. on napalm, but I'm still, I still reject it. <laughs> Um, so one of the, one of the points that you make, you know, when I try to discuss this with people, some people say, okay, like, so he's saying that, you know, humanitarian stuff can be a distraction from the real work. You know, why can't we do both? Um, so I, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, 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 it's for that reason that I look as, as carefully as I could at, at Vietnam. You know, wh- one of my favorite, you know, uh, quotes in the book actually comes from Harry Summers, who mm-hmm. what became the kind of dean of so-called revisionist thinking about Vietnam as a kind of lost cause, which, you know, Americans stab, stab the kind of stab in the back version. Right. Um, and amazingly he says you know people complained about atrocity in vietnam but it was nothing compared to what what i saw in korea um right. and it, in a way you could argue that there's there's some big shift just in that time between you know the early 50s and the late 60s but it amazed me that in vietnam you you get without even a, like any hesitation the American government and in, in through the mouthpiece of Dean Rusk um, saying, of course we heart the Geneva conventions. And, and that kind of sensitized me to the fact that what may have changed by nine 11, when John, you had had to try to kind of sidestep uh, the Geneva conventions is that somehow they had come to matter. Um, right. Russ could endorse them because no one really cared if you followed through. Um, and, and, and in, and international lawyers and kind of people aware of that stuff in kind of public debate around Vietnam also kind of focused on whether there, that we should have a war in Vietnam. However, um, when the My Lai revelations kind of came, they, they, they did do both and, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely for, um, denouncing atrocity as long as you're not risking debugging war, you know, and leaving the program of endless war in the process. And the reason Vietnam is so interesting is that they, they were able to kind of filter atrocity concern into their pre-existing anti-war pressure and say it's 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 part partly because the war is is wrong that you're getting these atrocities and we're not going to let you keep fighting the war because the atrocities are, are proving so scandalous whereas after 9/11 maybe there were some folks who were trying to kind of run that script again but the point is tragically that you know at least enough people were around to 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 choose the debugging option and say yeah. you've complained about atrocity well we'll get rid of it um and the trouble maybe was that there wasn't a, enough anti-war pressure 
um, and both and didn't work out. So it really did become either or. And right. it, in a way, I mean, my response to that, the question that, you know, you're, you know, you've heard is, no, that what we need is both and. And the trouble is that we've lost one of the two kind of considerations um, yeah. in favor of just denouncing tortured civilian casualties and not the whether, where, and for how long of American war, but um, just the how. You know, one of the points you make in the book is, you write, much greater suffering was visited on more people through illegal war than illegal war crimes, in part because so much is legal once war starts, right? Sure, and, and our ancestors and really, you know, that, yeah. they, they understood that after World War II. At Nuremberg, they charged aggression as the biggest crime, and, and it's kind of like they understood that, like, if you, uh, if you con con constrain war, you constrain war crimes, whereas the reverse isn't true. Right. Yeah, and, and sort of, you know, one of the things that you track is the kind of rewriting of the history of Nuremberg, where the fact that it was primarily about people responsible for wars of aggression um, and... Uh, and, 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 you know, as the emphasis, and now we remember it as a trial of atrocities, right? right. Uh, and, and one of the, one of the people involved in the prosecution actually helped that along sort of consciously during Vietnam correct? because he correct. thought it was sort of useful for the political moment. Correct. Um, you know, I think one of the things that really illustrates the point is what happens as it, from the switch between the Bush and the Obama administration. So, you know, as you point out, uh, you know, you is this sort of infamous author of the torture memos, right? And he had, he'd sort of argued, made two different types of very dubious um, uh, legal arguments, right? Mm -hmm. One was for, you know, the torture memos, the, the enhanced interrogation techniques, but right. he also asserted almost limitless presidential authority in war making, right? Right. Um, and, you know, as you point out in that quote about illegal wars, that limitless authority in, in presidential war making is, can lead to horrific abuse, right? Right. And then Obama comes in, and by the time he comes in, uh, the sort of worst excesses were already being reined in, but he sort of continues that process. While, and this was new to me and very interesting, from almost the very beginning of his administration, they are arguing for an expansive power for the presidency, right? In 2009, Elena Kagan is suggesting a, a deterritorialized de global battlefield, right? Where anyone can be captured or killed without restraint, right? Um, so very early on in the Obama administration, they are sort of doubling down on the <laughs> expansive presidential war powers that you had uh, right. argued for right. while pushing back on, on, on the war crimes. And he's being hailed, uh, you know, Jane Meyer writes that Obama consigned to history the worst excesses of the Bush administration's war on terror, which, you know, calls to mind the question, well, without suggesting that torture was anything other than an unbelievable moral stain, right? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the terrible excesses was this sort of expansion of war, right? Right. right. Um, and what we have now is uh, a situation where, and you sort of, you know, Obama lawyers argue that uh, ISIS, even though it didn't exist in 2001 when the authorization for the use of military force was passed, that we can fight ISIS with it, we can fight groups in Africa that have very limited association to um, Al-Qaeda and don't really pose a credible threat to the homeland. Um, we can kill people who, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're only supposed to be able to kill people if they have pose an imminent threat. Um, but it's, you know, suddenly it becomes self-defense and his lawyers are, are using terms like elongated imminence, right? Uh, which I mean, calls to mind the arguments for preemptive war, uh, in Iraq, right? Well, that phrase so, was was invented to not say preemption because that would be too much like Bush, and so they kept the imminence requirement, but then said we had to elongate it, which is just like uh, comes to the same thing as preemption. Right. Um, 
um, you know, the, I suppose, you know, my answer to the, you know, the, the argument, you know, why can't we do both? Or is, is this distraction argument right. really, um, uh, really valid is, well, it worked, right? right. It was tremendously successful. Right. Uh, and it is, you know, it's the situation that we're in now when we pulled troops out of Afghanistan, Joe Biden, in the same speech where he announced at the end of the war, also announced that we were going to continue to kill people in Afghanistan using over-the-horizon strikes, right? right? So we're no longer at war, but we're continuing to kill people. Right. Um, yeah. And that seems to be a sort of happy political medium for, for presidents. You know, I, I think, you know, again, Obama, I, I'm so into him, and I, I, I try to kind of make him a you know the main character of this book in in a in a way just because he was was so public in his own moral deliberation and i think that you know he was in a sense honest if you listened that he faced kind of these contending incentives one right. is that he understood that presidents could start to win by selectively opposing war, especially that first form of the war on terror. That's how he won against Hillary Clinton. That's how Donald Trump won against his fellow Republicans and then against Hillary Clinton again. And Joe Biden, you know, attacked endless war in his campaign. But, you know, even though Obama also said, look, this is a boring regulatory problem, it and more people die from slipping in the bathtub or you know, drive texting while driving or even domestic terrorism. He didn't say that part. Um, he understood that he had to act uh, to, to make sure that like he, his, his career and his administration didn't get tagged as allowing a strike on the homeland, another nine yep. 11. And so that's where Biden is too. And, you mm -hmm. know, he, he was able to fulfill the moves that have long been in process of shifting from the first to the second war on terror. But we got the second one because, you know, presidents, you know, don't want to kind of kind of take on the, the responsibility of teaching Americans that they don't need forever war. And as you mm -hmm. know, um, not just citizens themselves, but the legislators who are supposed to be deeply involved in war making are also shirking their responsibility. So right. that's why I, I just focus on this critical moment when the way that the first form of the war on terror has gotten delegitimized allows people in January 2009 to say the war's over. I mean, it's a you know, front page of the Washington Post day three, first day, yeah. the day, the same day that Obama kills first with, with his first drone, you know, yep. reporters say Obama ended the war on terror. And, yep. you know, Obama got an enormous amount of room for maneuver for not being Bush in the same way that in memory, he gets a lot of kind of um, like a, a, a lot of idolatry for not being Donald Trump. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, and he was better than both, but th this was a, a pivotal um, moment where, in a sense, we allowed him to give in to that incentive um, yeah. to kind of not end war, but reinvent it. And I don't know how it ends because it, it doesn't seem like Americans are going to die. Yeah. And it, it, and as, as you've noted, like, decreasingly there are 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 not as many victims um yep. dying certainly relative to historical shadow you know, wars I, I would say not as many direct victims yes. right yeah so you know in in my novel uh missionaries is yep. in some ways about this right and one of right. the things i was very concerned with was the rise of targeted killing right targeted right. killing is the um you know, it's the tool of choice right. when, you know, when Obama in his last, I think the last day of the union address said something like, if you doubt my, you know, my commitment to fighting the war on terror, like ask Osama bin Laden, ask the planner right. of the Benghazi, you know, attack. And it was like, you know, yep. do you doubt that I have a military policy? I killed a couple guys, 
right? Which right. was crazy right. to me, right? And and right. Donald Trump did essentially the same thing when he bragged about killing uh, Kissim Soleimani, right? Oh, absolutely. And in in, in the novel, you know, it's based mostly in Colombia, but also in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and sort of tactics have sort of migrated between wars. Um, you know, in 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 Colombia, we sort of developed a, a a sort of better system of connecting like intelligence units and direct action units in the hunt for Pablo Escobar. That knowledge right. was used in the in Bosnia, and then in Iraq, we sort of take some of those ideas, pump them up full of steroids and develop the infrastructure for a kind of industrial scale machine for targeting people, right? And we go from something like JSOC is doing 12 raids in 2004 to 250 in, in, in yeah, 2006, that's right? That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, that's not done because like the Navy SEALs went to the gym and got more buff, right? Right. It's done because of, you know, the way in which and the infrastructure, uh, the sort of system that connects intelligence, technology, units, and so on. And that system, you know, at the end of that system can be a drone or a special operations team, right? right? Most people think drones are creepy. They think, you know, Navy SEALs or whatever are cool. But from the perspective of the system, that's just the Phillips head and the flathead screwdriver at the end of the system, exactly. right? Exactly. And that system can be applied to other places. And it was applied in, in Colombia. And it was very important to me. There are two targeted killings that are important in the book. Mm-hmm. And it was important for, for both of them. Yep. There were no civilian casualties, and they got the right guy, right. right? Right. And the reason that I wanted to do that is because uh, I describe a killing that takes place based on a real strike where the Colombians like found out that a, a drug lord had special ordered a six-foot-tall teddy bear for his girlfriend, and they put a beacon in the teddy bear and followed it to the birthday party so they could kill him. Um, is it... You know, if you have a territory that the government is not interested in as a political entity, right, but merely interested in as a sort of site where dangerous people sometimes pop up, right, right who you then kill in a kind of form of pest control, right. you know, you can kill people in that region, but that doesn't solve the political issues that are generating violence, right? Absolutely. And so if you kill if you kill a warlord or a drug leader in 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 you know a poor region of Colombia where the government doesn't have much presence and isn't interested in having much presence, yeah. what happens is not political stability, right? Um, what happens is uh, a power struggle and a change that the the people killing can be totally unaware of. Of course, you know one of the the things that was sort of I have this like weird nostalgia not for coin counterinsurgency mm-hmm. which failed, right. but for the habits of mind that it actually tried to get people right. to think about. Right. Because, you know, if you talk with guys who did sort of landowner things, in story yep. after story, they'll tell you about the time when, like, special operations came, and they did a raid, and then they flew away, and then the landowner unit had to deal with the consequences, right? The people who were pissed off, right, um, because some shadow ninjas just came in and, like, killed members of their family and left. Right. And at least while we were doing coin, we cared about that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, you know, I was in I was in Iraq in December 2019. There was like huge political upheaval. There was sort of youth protests, a lot of anger towards Iran and to the corruption in the government. And it was in that environment that we killed Qasem Soleimani. Yep. And um, and also one of the main you know Iranian-backed militia leaders uh, in Iraq. And the discussion in the United States was purely about how this would affect the relationship between America and Iran. Right. And the fact that it could throw all sorts of chaos out into Iraq was something we didn't consider because even now, after 20 years of warfare that have proved this again and again and again, we still haven't learned that the second and third order consequences of doing violence are often the most important. I'm with you all the way. I, you know, I, 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 I do not achieve your literary heights, but you know, I, I open humane with a kind of vignette um, yeah, of a wedding. Good. And again, it's precisely one in which contrary to the reader's um, expectations, the drone doesn't strike the wedding. It right. does strike, you know, someone and who, you know, deserves, you know, punishment on some level or you know interdiction whatever but 
I'm, I'm interested in like everyone else, this people who aren't struck anymore, but are living under the drones. Um, are they supposed to be grateful? Um, well, you know, as the great reporting of Anand Gopal the other week showed, yeah, if you're interested in why, you know, our, you know, our, our friendly government in Afghanistan, you know, collapsed, well, it's because, you know, rural Afghans, notably women, um, just didn't side with, um, you know, our, our enterprise there. And, you know, the Taliban promised to, to kind of not necessarily make them safer, but it, 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 it promised an alternative to this permanent security that, you know, America's tried to impose there and, and so many other places. And of course, you know, the persisting concern is still gotta be violence. You know, those second and third order consequences are violent, but even when they're not, they're, they're kind of scary because they're about um, not like really, treating these people as equal. So I'm, I get the idea that coin at least understands that, you know, the loyalty of the, of, of, of world populations to your project is ultimately what matters because when they side with your enemies, your enemies win. Um, the question is like, how do, how do we, how, how do we, um, kind of have a foreign policy since I'm anything but a like isolationist, um, that w- would would do better. And and you know, as you say, coin it is wasn't it, but there's an insight there that kind of consent and legitimacy matters in uh, and and not just you know um, killing, right? And 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 treating those other populations as as human population. Exactly. Right. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the, I reviewed you in, in, in Commonweal, as you know, and I began it with a sort of anecdote that really struck me. Um, when I was doing research for the book, I interviewed this, this Colombian, uh, Colombian colonel who's, who's kind of a character. Mm -hmm. Um, he had, he'd gone to the school of the Americas in, in the early 1980s. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> which is the school where we would take like Latin American officers and train them. Um, and he, he uh, you know, like all of his instructors were Vietnam veterans. And even for this guy, and like this guy was like, he was like mm. a tough, unapologetic, like Colombian colonel who'd talk about working with paramilitaries. And like he was not, he was not apologetic about anything that had happened. Right. But even for this guy, you know, he was like, Sus tácticas poco agresivas, you know, <laughs> like just like a little bit, right? You know, too right. much. Um, and uh, you know, and he's like, whatever, like war is brutal, it's always going to be bad, you right. know, we'll never have paradise. And he's like, right. the conquistadors were criminals, bandits, the terrorists of Spain, and they were right. my grandparents, my ancestors, and I've got that gene in my blood, right. blood of, <laughs> of, of wickedness and evil, or picaro right. was the word, and um. But then when I asked him, like, all right, what, what support should, should America continue to give Colombia? Like, first right. he's like, air power. We need help with air power. Like, air power is really important. We have jungles. We have mountains. We need air power. Go back. Tell your congressman. Continue to give, you know, Colombia support for our, uh, especially, like, helicopters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes, like, oh, and human rights. That's important. Right. right? <laughs> and which was not what I was expecting at all. No, it's a great the story. Um. The Colombian military's like human rights record has been very bad, oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. and uh, human rights. Not much later, there's a, another Colombian general would be recorded as saying like the army of speaking English of protocols of human rights is over, right? Right. Um, but for him, he explained it in this purely amoral, pragmatic right. um, thing. He was like, if the peace treaty goes through, we'll be responsible for territory where we've committed massacres, and if we continue to do that over time, it will be bad for us, right? right. And so that was just like human rights is part of command and control. Right. And yeah. you need that in order to do it. Absolutely. Um, but there was another thing that he didn't talk about that I wondered whether this was a part of it. Because at the time, 
the kind of hardline former president Uribe was waging this like very aggressive campaign against the right. peace treaty. Like Colombians right. were going to vote on whether they were going to sign a peace treaty with the FARC. And there right. had been horrible human rights abuses on both sides. Yep. And Human Rights Watch's America's division um, was really aggressively criticizing the justice provisions of the accord, right? Because when you do a peace treaty, right, people don't come and agree to a peace treaty where then all of the commanders of one side go into jail, of right? Of course, yeah. Especially when, you know, the government had committed human rights abuses that were as bad, right? Yep. Or, or yep. worse in some cases, right? Um, you know, that's just how peace yep. treaty works, right? Like, yep. you don't get perfect justice yep. after a peace treaty. And so human rights, the sort of right-wing folks who are fighting against the peace treaty, who wanted to continue waging war against the FARC, who had, you know... Uh, many of them had been allied with paramilitary groups who were by far the worst human rights abusers, yep. right? All of a sudden they were talking about human rights and human rights was the way to oppose this peace treaty, you know? And yep. it was like, yep. no yep. justice, no peace. Exactly. And, and those strike me as sort of two, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the two different sort of interpretations of why this guy was um, uh, all of a sudden into human rights, I thought yeah. was sort of, Related no, it's a, it a perfect anecdote. Because um, I, in the book, I get into like how American, how the American military, I, I call it self-humanizes after Vietnam. Um, right. And and I, I don't, you know, I, I think in many cases it was out of like ethical reflection, but also kind of optical public relations um, considerations, but. You know, I also get into the way in which Human Rights Watch, aside from backing a few humanitarian interventions, um, basically like hasn't been a peace organization um, and refuses to say whether causes are just or says that peace, if it's unjust, you know, is is a bad thing. And that is, you know, that's a political choice. And right. it played, I, I think, very dreadfully in Colombia, but it also played dreadfully in our history in the sense that if after Vietnam, kind of the anti-war movement dies and you just have people pushing for more humanity and warfare, you know, um, you know then, then these ideologies of intervention that lead us into these new quagmires don't really kind of have the same opposition. They just have an opposition that says, you know, just keep it, keep it ethical out, right. you know, in the field. And of course, at the end of that road is Obama and targeted killings and our future. You know, at, at the end, and there was, I almost wanted a more um, philosophical investigation of, yeah. of, of violence at the end, because yeah. you, you make this argument we say like, okay, you know, when we think about war, we think about the suffering in war. But what if, you know, what if our, our drones and our targeting and our algorithms, yeah. what if they really do get so perfect that we can just, you know, when we kill people, it's the people that we want to kill, right? Um, would that still be wrong? Should that still morally trouble us, right? right? And you suggest that, you know, the the more visible horrors of war might distract us from what is the worst thing about war. And I wanted to ask you, what is then the worst thing about war? Cause the horrors of war are pretty bad. Yeah. Well, so no, no doubt and never denied it. Um, contrary <laughs> to some tweets, but you know, <laughs> despite it, your it, nostalgia for napalm. It, it's a, yeah. Except for that, you know, um, I, you know, I, um, so I'll first say, you know, I start the book as, as with, we've said with kind of a scenario like yours in which like only, only the kind of legitimate targets are struck and that's still war as we've known it because it's violent. It's just, you know, legal and, and legitimate violence. Um, at least in the sense that it doesn't break international humanitarian law and it, it mm -hmm. only kind of kills combatants. Um, and, but then I think of, you know, w what are the drones doing? Well, a lot of the times they're just surveilling. Um, and I think of the guests at my kind of wedding who aren't being 
aren't at risk of violence, but they are kind of under control of some other country. Um, and, you know, it's not just drones, but, you know, robot wars that are coming, autonomous weapon systems that will have algorithms to reduce violence and maybe, you know, capture, uh, you know, our quarry in the end uh, in, instead of killing um, as if, you know, we have a mechanized global police force. Um, and what, what does that tell us that like what, what we're out there doing is not violent except um, kind of because of bad apples, honest mistakes and kind of like the persisting necessity just to kind of get rid of our enemies. But what, what we're really looking for is a kind of permanent security. Um, yeah. a, against all comers and that seems to be like what war is about and maybe we should have always known that but we're by seeing the violence increasingly edited out we're seeing that you can get permanent security not only in a less violent but maybe someday in a non-violent way and that doesn't mean it's not hierarchical it, it it's defined by hierarchy we wouldn't yeah. accept people doing this to us. And that's why I start not just with the, the wedding somewhere, but the wedding near near where we live, where we have we have drones, but it's just to do, you know, wedding videography um, right. and uh, deliver our Amazon packages. And, um, and so I just, in the end, I wonder, like if we wouldn't tolerate permanent security um, against people who, you know, from people who are more powerful than us, why should we impose it on others? You know? Right. Well, maybe we should then move to the artwork that we're going to discuss. Sure. Um, which I, I see behind you. Yes. I um, have a print of it. Although you may uh, have done more research into it than I, I, you know, <laughs> my knowledge of it is superficial. Although okay, it is good. mentioned in the book. Um, so, you want to tell us what you picked and why? Sure. It's, um, it's a print from a, a German uh, artist named Ketze Kolwitz, and it's called The Survivors. And, you know, I chose it because one of the big themes in the book, obviously, is the peace movement. And not just poets, but artists generally, and their, you know, their kind of predominant significance in, in changing our imaginations. Um, yeah. It's also significant that this was a, a, a woman, since I, I really do stress that um, before recent times, in part because they were, you know, in a gendered world where they were not fighting but losing their husbands, sons, and brothers, you know, women really did kind of demand world peace or more of it um, at a certain time. And Kolvitz uh, became famous. Um, for these kind of chilling prints um, after World War I, kind of just dramatizing the costs for all concerned of World War. Um, in a way, we're in, you know, a, a global World War right now. Um, it's just this, this kind that, you know, we're barely getting artists and poets to kind of to dramatize in the way that that whole generation of World War I poets and artists kind of so successfully did. Um, although, you know, World War II happened, obviously. So uh, it's, 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 you know, the, the, the print, this particular print of the survivors um, is uh, essentially women and children and some folks who, who seem to have had their vision um, kind of, you know, ruined by what either what they've seen at the front or by, um, you know, kind of explosives that have blinded them. And so I think there's a lot to interpret in it if people want to call it up on their screens. At yeah. Any point. 
I, I do strongly recommend people people look it up. It's yeah, it's it's uh, Colwitz K O L L W I T Z the Survivor. I'll, I'll include a link to it in the show notes. I mean, it's it's interesting too because her, you know she had a son who died in World War One, mm-hmm. um, and she actually, you know, she had sort of uh, kind of complex but patriotic feelings at the beginning. There's a, a diary entry, you know, right. uh, from 1914 of hers. In their hearts, the boys are undivided. They give of themselves with exultation. They give of themselves like a pure, smokeless flame rising steeply up to heaven. To see this on this evening was painful and also so very, very beautiful, right? The, right. Talking about the boys, including her son, who go off. And then um, her son Peter dies uh, on October 22nd, 1914. Um, her, and she spends, I mean, a lot of her life thinking about that, um, and thinking about how she's going to memorialize that, right? Um, and even sort of immediately afterwards, she's like writing things like, no lovelier death is there in the world than to be struck down to the enemy, is what school children will sing. And I'm going to you know, do a monument to portray Peter's figure stretched out, his father at his head, his mother at his feet. It will be dedicated to the sacrificatory death of young volunteers, right? It's a wonderful aim, and nobody has as much right to create this monument as I do. And then she sort of, increasingly turns into a kind of rejection of the war, um, which as she's doing it, she's writing in her journal about how like she feels as if she's, you know, she's wondering if she's being disloyal to her dead son to see nothing but madness in the war. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, uh, I, I went through some of her diaries and they're just yeah. like stunning. Um, that trajectory is actually pretty characteristic in the sense that, you yeah. know, we know that in, in the summer of 1914, the guns of August, et cetera, you know, um, everyone's thrilled. Um, and, you know, cosmopolitan intellectuals are suddenly claiming that it's their country that represents the interests of humanity. Um, yeah. And, you know, there are many, many examples of folks who kind of recover from that. And the question is how long it takes them. You know, Sigmund Freud, uh, you know, a, a not doesn't take him as long as Colbitz, but he, he writes an incredible reflection um, when he's kind of recovered from his war and enthusiasm called Thoughts for the Time on War and Death and, and kind of changes his whole theory of human motivation to make the death drive, you know, central. Mm. Um, and, and so in a way we've lived through something similar where it's not like there was a war enthusiasm after, after nine 11, although among intellectuals, there was kind of a sense that after dithering America had a purpose finally. Um, yeah. but there was kind of just almost universal consent when it came to this blank check that uh, Congress wrote George W. Bush and that the American people did. So, you know, we've, 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 we've had a much longer two decade period of disillusionment. Um, And in retrospect, I I wish we had seen the light as quickly as Freud and Colbitz and, and some of these others uh, did. Yeah, you know, one of the things, because there's a lot of great art, um, German art from around that period, yeah. the sort of interwar period, and a lot of it is sort of stark yes. um, and uh, uh, cut, you know, sort of socially cutting, right? Yeah. Um, and her work stands out. I was trying to f- figure out why mm-hmm. it strikes me so. And I found this from um, Michael Stuber, uh, uh, which I thought was very good. He says, Compassion seems always the most essential element in Colwitz's social critique, a feature with, which links her to modern-day practical theology and marks her off from most of her contemporary German social critical artists who did not typically express or evoke this emotional feeling in their critiques. And he talks about going to the Neue Gallery in New York City and seeing work from the 1930s. Yeah. Um, it says, The exhibit was widely varied, powerful, and moving assessment of the social-political corner of Nazi Germany. Um, surprisingly, it did not include Colwitz's work. Moreover, while the critiques by these great artists evoked various feelings in me, admiration, amazement, sadness, outrage, mystery, dread, and horror, only the work of the photographer August Sander evoked compassion. Right? Mm-hmm. 
and there's a, a, a diary entry of hers where she's describing her process in 1920 and 1922, uh, two separate entries that I'll read. While I drew and wept along with the terrified children I was drawing, I really felt the burden I'm bearing. I felt that I have no right to withdraw from the responsibility of being an advocate. Yeah. It is my duty to voice the suffering of people, the never-ending sufferings heaped mountain high. Yeah. This is my task, but it's not an easy one to fulfill. I would like to exert influences in these times when human beings are so perplexed and in need of help. Brilliant. You know, although and, that take out gets right to the heart of humane, because, you know, when we orient ourselves towards suffering in war, especially physical suffering, do we miss miss the the root cause of the suffering um and i i think she um she can't be blamed for um what happened which is a, a new a, a new very brutal war um within you know not long but but we we somehow ha can reflect on our war and say the dramatization of physical suffering, you know, the identification with those who have seen some of the most brutal physical depredations is it's indispensable and necessary. And, you know, her vocation seems like one that it, if only it were more widespread. On the other hand, it can lead perversely to something she couldn't have imagined which was war without brutality, uh, at right. least, you know, in, in maybe in, in some in increasing sense of, although of course I would never deny that even humane war so-called is still brutal and violent as of today. Well, you know, one thing that's interesting is, so she had always been, um, drawn to sort of sacrificial religious imagery. She'd actually mm -hmm. done a sort of, She's an early Pieta, which is very famous. Okay. She'd done an image of a grieving mother where uh, she used her son, Peter, who was then seven years old, as the model for the fallen son, right? And of course, Peter is the one who ultimately dies later. And so she, she'd, she'd sort of worked through these images of sacrifice and sacrifice. But then later in her life, she gives up that kind of sacrificial mother. Um, and there's a 1941 print, which is worth checking out, called Seed Corn Must Not Be Ground. Okay. Um, the title might be better in the original German. I'm not sure. But <laughs> the image is great. Um, and it's this, like, mother standing upright. She's protecting three children. She's got this angry gaze. She's got, like, outstretched arms that are strong. You know, it's like the mood is not one of, of emphasis on death and suffering, but on, like, uh, intense life right right um and she wrote describing it my heart has been so heavy these past few days so i drew the same thing again boys real berlin lads champing at the bit like young horses wanting to get outside held back by a woman the woman an old woman has taken the boys under herself and her coat she spreads her arms and hands over the boys forceful and dominant Seed corn must not be ground like no more war this appeal is no yearning wish but a commandment a demand and i think that um emphasis on on life yes, yes. <laughs> and its vibrancy and its rejection of um of not just you know violence but coercion right right, right. um right. uh is is important so in, in that regard maybe she did anticipate yeah aspects i love of your that critique. i love that you know and um you know you you have to think of of peace as an affirmative value um and not just like what you get once you reduce the suffering in war. And, right. you know, she must have understood that from the beginning, but that's a brilliant way of, uh, of, of getting, you know, to a, a kind of more explicit representation um, of, of that, of peace as a kind of more positive ideal and not just yeah. the negation of suffering. And, and, you know, I do, I do share your, your, your complaint uh, you know, I think uh, Vitan went at a piece in the New York Times where he complained about sort of how in kind of critical engagement with the contemporary wars is fairly limited among right. the American literary community, right? right. Like um, outside of people like Wen and, yep. um, and, and veteran writers, right? Uh, and uh, there's a bit from David Jones in Parenthesis, which is probably my favorite work of World War I. Mm -hmm. And he references uh, the Welsh Percival story uh, and this is the line from it. 
Pyrdur, I greet thee not, seeing that thou dost not merit it. Blind was fate in giving thee favor and, uh, favor and fame, when thou wast in the court of the lame king, and to see the youth bearing the streaming spear, from the points of which were drops of blood, thou didst not inquire their meaning nor their cause. Hadst thou done so, the king would have been restored to his health and his dominion in peace, whereas from henceforth he will have to endure battles and conflicts, and his knights will perish, and wives will be widowed, and maidens will be left portionless, and all this is because of thee. Um, right <laughs> so, you know, uh, a uh, <laughs> something artists, uh, especially American artists in an age where, where wars are ongoing but mostly invisible is something uh, exactly. maybe they should consider. Exactly. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>